0: podcast. We truly hope you'll be inspired and challenged today. Now let's dive into this message with the family at Pleasant Ridge. Well good morning church family. Good to see y'all. We are going to be in the uh, book of Psalms here this morning. Uh, Psalms 92 is where we'll find ourselves. And uh, so happy for all those that are guests here uh, this morning. Um, I'm a vocational elder here. That means that I do a majority of the, uh, the teaching here. Uh, Jeff and uh, Jerry's back in the sound booth back there. Uh, and also another elder that's here, uh, not here today, uh, Alan. Uh, all four of us here, we, we shepherd here this, uh, this congregation here. Um, But we're going to be here in uh, Psalms 92 here this morning, and uh, for those of you just joining with us, we've been working through some of the Psalms here, primarily for Thanksgiving, and all of these having to do uh, with giving thanks, and we've already looked at a a couple of them already, Um, one of them uh, being uh, Psalm 34. Uh, we looked at as uh, seeing the goodness and the blessing of God. Uh, Last week, uh, we found ourselves out of uh, Psalm 86 and how uh, David had this prayer of of thanksgiving uh, to God for who he is and and what he's done. And this morning, as we look at uh, Psalm 92, this is another psalm where the psalmist is going to be exclaiming, uh, to, to us and, and really to, to God, uh, basically of God's greatness, his glory. And if you can remember, I had mentioned that it's important for us to, to always focus in on who God is as the scriptures reveal him, uh, because as God reveals himself to us, it helps us put our eyes of faith on him, and it changes, uh, maybe not necessarily our circumstances, But it changes how we view those circumstances and how we can live with faith and live with the ability of knowing that the Lord is in control. So let's read here together uh, Psalm 92, and uh, we'll, we'll work our way through it. So the psalmist writes, It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning. And your faithfulness by night. To the music of the lute and the harp. To the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this, what? That though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord. For behold, your enemies shall perish all evil evildoers shall be scattered but you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox you have poured over me fresh oil my eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies my ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. To declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. Now, if you're looking in your Bibles, the the title of this psalm is is rather interesting. It does not give us the author. It just has this real interesting title, and the title is a psalm for the Sabbath. And so, in other words, this psalm is, is the only psalm that we find in the whole book of psalms that is supposed to be sung on the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath was the day that the, that the Jews gathered together for worship. And so this psalm is supposed to be sung for worship. <laughs> the psalms are really basically a songbook. They're, they're for our to sing. Now, we have lots of songs that we sing, but this right here, the psalms, was their Songbook. This is what they sung. And it's really interesting too because even in all the Psalms, there's a variety of songs. You have some songs that, that talk about God's greatness and his glory and his majesty and how, how great and wonderful things that he's done. And then you also have Psalms that are full of lament and despair and darkness. And all of those were supposed to be sung To the Lord. This psalm here addresses the problem of the prosperity of the wicked. This is actually a theme that you find a lot through a lot of the psalms. You find it in Psalm 37, Psalm 49, and also Psalm 73. But here, rather than being troubled by the prosperity of the wicked, as you find in some of the other psalms, You find that the psalmist confidently portrays the wicked as growing up like grass, but just for a moment, and then cut off. And then you see him talking about the righteous as flourishing, uh, as what only the Lord can do. Isn't that an interesting song to be singing uh, to the Lord in the congregation? I mean, can you think about it? I mean, this, this psalm is, is praising God that he's going to destroy the wicked. Can you imagine if our songs, if we had songs today? Oh, Lord, you will cut off all the wicked people. They will be cast into hell and burn forever. That's what this psalm is. It is praising God that he will destroy the wicked. How is it possible that a godly person can rejoice at the destruction of the wicked? What makes us feel guilty about the punishment of evildoers when the psalmist feels very glad about it? I believe that as we look and meditate here on God's eternal truth... I believe that this psalm can really have some really good implications for us and and help us learn more about who our God is and to see what he's done and so that we should be giving praise and thanks to him. And so this is what I want you to take away with you today. Give thanks to the Lord. He is worthy of worship. He destroys the wicked and he flourishes the righteous. So let's take here, first of all, number one, give thanks to the Lord for he is worthy of worship. We should give thanks to the Lord because he alone is worthy of worship. You know who we should not be worshiping? People. The Lord alone is worthy of worship. In fact, notice what the psalmist says about this worship in verse number one. He says, it is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High. Giving thanks is a form of worship. I think we fail to grasp the, 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 the full meaning of this word good here. Um, We've been, I think, conditioned to view the word good as as meaning something that is beneficial for us. However, the psalmist is using the word to mean that worship of God is a delight and a pleasure. Can I ask you a question and really even ask all of us, even myself included, a question? Do we delight in God? Do we... Do we delight and have the pleasure in God, in who He is, what He does? Do we take great delight and pleasure in that? If we're all honest, you know what we normally do? We complain. We don't take pleasure in what God does, we don't take pleasure in who God is. Why? Because we complain. And the psalmist says it is a good thing for us to give thanks to the Lord. He wants us to understand that worship is good and that it is pure pleasure to those who truly love God. Let me give you a couple other scriptures that I think can really help us grasp what this psalmist is trying to say for this word for good. Psalm 147.1. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and praise is becoming. Psalm 33, 1 exclaims, sing for joy in the Lord. Oh, you righteous ones, praise is becoming to the uprights. I want to give you five reasons why we are to give thanks here to the Lord. And I believe you can see them here in our text here this morning. Number one, give thanks to the Lord because of who he is. Notice what the psalmist says again here in verse number one. He uses two names for God. He uses the word Lord, which is the word Yahweh. And he also uses the word, the, the phrase, the name of God, O Most High. That's El Elyon. A name, Yahweh, there. It means that God is the covenant keeping God. The psalm was to be sung on the Sabbath, if you remember. And I want you to make the connection here. Here they are, there's to be singing to the Lord, Yahweh, because he's the covenant keeping God. It's interesting if you look through this psalm, you know how many times you find the word Yahweh mentioned? 7 times. And what day was this supposed to be sung on? The Sabbath, the 7th day. And here they are, they're exclaiming, "God, you are the covenant-keeping God, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, always, again and again and again. God, you never fail. And we're going to give you thanks for who you are. You find also here that word, El Elyon. It's a name that's frequently attributed to God. O most high, that's what the psalmist says. Psalm 97.9 proclaims, For you are the Lord most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. This is a good opportunity, I believe, for us to examine our own hearts, to judge ourselves whether or not is the most high covenant-keeping God my God. Is he your Lord? Do you know him? Or is it just a name? Is it just a phrase? Is it just... You know, that's just what we do on Sundays. We talk about God. Is the covenant-keeping God, the Most High God, your God? Is he your Savior? I believe the psalmist here could say that because he knew God personally. He knew this covenant-keeping Most High Holy God. Here's the second thing. Give thanks to the Lord at all times. Look at verse number two. He says, it's good to give us thanks to the Lord. Why? To declare your steadfast love when in the morning and your faithfulness by night. That is really a poetic way of saying that it is good to declare God's praise at all times. John Calvin on his notes on this verse said, "We never lack matter for praising God unless we're too lazy to see it, because his goodness and faithfulness are incessant. God's goodness and faithfulness abound always. It says that he makes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. God is very good." God is always faithful, and we should always be giving praise to God, and he mentions two things, what? His steadfast love in the morning and his faithfulness by night, and that gives us the third thing here. Give thanks to the Lord for his loyal love and faithfulness. Do we give thanks to God for his loyal love and faithfulness? The psalmist here says we need to give thanks to God for these things. When studying and reading the Psalms, you often find God's loving kindness, His loyal love, and His faithfulness are frequently paired together, always. And I believe it's it's mentioned together as reasons to praise Him. Here are just three examples of this Psalm 36 5. Your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to where? The heavens. Your faithfulness reaches where? To the skies. Psalm 57, 10. For your loving kindness is great to the heavens and your truth, it's the same word as faithfulness to the clouds. Psalm 89, 1. I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever to all generations. I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. If you think daily about the Lord's loyal love and his faithfulness towards you, you will have abundant reasons to praise him. I just want you to think about that. How unfaithful are we to God? Always. Are we really loving people? Oh, we say we are, right? Oh, I love you. I love you. But are we really loving? God is loving. God is always faithful. And there are abundant reasons that we can praise him. Because of his loyal love towards us. His his faithfulness is always abounding towards us. Here's the fourth thing that we should be giving thanks to the Lord in worship. Give thanks to the Lord with instruments and singing. Look at these next verses, verses 3 and 4. He says, To the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre, for you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. We need to remember, and please understand this, we need to remember that worship is not just the music. It's not just limited to music. Worship encompasses so many things. It is one of the ways that we can worship God. Worship provides us with the opportunity to say publicly of God what we should be saying privately to him. Take note of verse 4. He says, For you, O Lord, have what made me glad. Worship is really declaring God's goodness and his greatness. Say, God, you have made me glad. This is why even in in situations where it's difficult, we find trials and hardships, we can still be glad. Why? Because God is unchanging. His faithfulness is unchanging. His love is unchanging. And we can always trust in Him. And He can make our heart glad because of who He is. When we gather together, everything we do here is to be of worship whether that is through praying, praying is worship, singing is worship, praising God through testimony is worship, serving one another is worship. It's all part of worship. We're all part of this. That's why it's so important that when we gather as the body of Christ, we are all participating in worship. Now, it's interesting here, the psalmist here, mentions a couple things about this worship. He mentions that we declare his his steadfast love and his faithfulness by night. And he says we can do it to the music of instruments, but we can also sing. Now, not all of us can play instruments. I can play the radio. Some of you probably can play an instrument, Or you have played an instrument, and that's great. But all of us can sing. Now, some of us may not be be able to sing as good as others, but you can still sing. And this is a great way for us to praise God, is through our singing. Check out verses 1 and and 4 here. He says, It is good to give thanks to the Lord to sing praises to your name. It's good for you. It's pleasurable. It's good. Verse number four. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. And it mentions singing with our voices. And verse three mentions these different instruments. Look at these instruments. I find this interesting. He says, to the music of the lute, the harp, And the melody of the lyre. The lute was a ten-stringed instrument. The harp is a stringed instrument. And the lyre is a stringed instrument. Now, the psalmist is not saying this is the only way we can praise God with stringed instruments. Okay? Uh, My wife and I were in a really crazy church that you could only have certain instruments uh, to be used in worship. I remember we were talking to our daughter about it. And we're like, yeah, they thought the drums were of the devil. (laughs) And she goes... They what? They thought the drums were of the devil? Yeah, they did, right? So it's interesting that he's not saying these are the only instruments that you can praise God with because Psalm 150 says you can praise God with every conceivable instrument imaginable, right? They're all to be used for the Lord. And so the psalmist here is trying to help us understand that we should be praising God. Look at verses 1 and 4. They talk about this singing. Singing praises and singing for joy. So one of the many ways, not the only way we worship God can be expressed in the, in the form of praise to Him. I believe it's what uh, Colossians 3.16 says, With psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God's. Here's a fifth way of why we can give thanks to the Lord for his worship. He says, look at verse number five here. Give thanks to the Lord because of his works. Verse five, how great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. I believe verses four and five is really a continuation of talking about singing and praising God with, uh, with singing and playing instruments because it gives us really the subject of our worship. What should the subject of our worship be? I am so great. God, you saved me. I am so great. I am so great. Look what I can do. I am so great. <clears throat> That's not the subject of our worship. You know what the subject of our worship should be? His great works. God, you have saved me. You went to the cross. You bled and died. God, your holiness, your justice, your grace, your mercy, your faithfulness, your loving kindness. That's what we should be singing and praising God about. And it's the subject of that. Look at verses 4 and 5 again. Look at this. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by what? Your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. Oh, great. How great are your works, O Lord. I believe we can give thanks to God for many of his works. What are his works that he's done? Well, think about with thee and I and I believe the psalm does this in a very subtle way. This psalm was to be sung on the Sabbath. What is the Sabbath? It's, a, it's supposed to be a day of rest. Why did God tell his people to rest? Because he himself rested. What did God rest from? Creation. Remember when he formed everything and he created everything? And I believe this is a great way that we, we can praise God for his works in creation. Just think about it. Think about his creation. Think about what he's done. Think about the... the how many of you ever been out to the West and have seen the, the, uh, the, the Rockies out there? I mean, you see that solid granite to rock i mean it's just amazing you go out to the grand canyon and you see what the flood has done and you see the vastness of 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 that area you go out there to the painted desert and you see the the beautiful colors and you see the sunset come down and the dust and the air and the the magnificence of, of his creation it's amazing you go to Niagara Falls and you see that gallons of water just pouring out over those uh, over those falls. It's amazing what God has done. And we can praise God for his creation. Romans 1:20 reminds us it says for since the creation of the world his invisible attributes his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen because they are understood through what has been made, so people are without excuse. We also see God's works as that of salvation or redemption. We see this implied by his loving kindness, that God has extended loving kindness towards us. Salvation is a total act of God. The only thing that you and I contribute to salvation is the sin. That made it necessary. That's it. Salvation is all of God. He saves us not because we're good. He saves us not because he sees us and goes, wow, they're going to do something wonderful. I just know it. No. He saves us for his own glory. It's a total act of God. Ephesians two eight nine 9 reminds us, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so God saves us, and we see his loving kindness towards us. And this is one of his works that he has done. We also see God's works in his relation to his thoughts. Look again here at verse number five. How great are your works, O Lord, your thoughts are very deep. I want you to think about that. God's thoughts are very deep. In other words, the way God runs things and chooses to run things. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9, God tells us plainly, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the, the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Paul exclaimed in Romans 11.33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable are his ways. You'll see this develops more in our next point as it refers to God's decision to allow the the, the wicked to flourish just for a little bit. But I think many times we, we see what's going on And we say, that's not fair, God. I could do a lot better of job than you can. But the psalmist says, how deep are your thoughts? And we see this in God's works. So we should give thanks to the Lord through worship because he is worthy of worship and who he is and what he has done and continues to. Here's the second point. Give thanks to the Lord for he will triumph over The wicked. So we should give thanks to the Lord for this. The psalmist makes two points about this. Number one, the wicked will perish. That's going to happen. Look at verse five and seven here. He says, How great are your works, O Lord? Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this what? That through, though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, They are doomed to destruction. The psalmist is talking about how deep God's thoughts are, and he connects it with how the wicked seem to be prospering. And he makes this observation in verse 6. What's the observation? The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this. Understand what? That even though the wicked seem to be prospering, that the wicked seem to be flourishing, God's going to cut them off. They're going to perish. They're doomed. The stupid man, the ignorant man, the foolish man doesn't see that. And so if we're always complaining about all the wickedness, all this, all that, all the things, and we don't see our God, that he's in control, and he's taking care of what he's going to take care of. His thoughts are very deep. What does that portray us as? Ignorant, foolish, and stupid. Because we are not understanding what God is doing. Although the wicked seem to flourish, we need to keep the eternal perspective. They flourish, but just for a brief moment. But their misery will be forever. The destruction of the wicked does not mean that they will be annihilated and cease to exist. No. Jesus makes it very clear that they will go into eternal punishment. Whereas the righteous go into eternal life, is what he said in Matthew 25, 46. Jesus, in fact, uses the same word to describe eternal life as he does about eternal punishment. It's forever. You don't cease to exist. And for those that do not know Christ as their Savior, they too will go into eternal punishment forever. And so that's why it's so important that we turn to Christ, we repent of our sin, and we believe in Jesus. It is senseless and stupid to forget eternity and live in rebellion against God just for a few fleeting years of pleasure in sin. Here's the second thing about this. Wicked men and wicked works do not threaten the Lord who reigns on high. I think we can all agree that men have become more and more wicked. Have you seen it? Have you seen it over the past few years? I mean, it's like the sheet's been ripped off and the lights were turned on. The wickedness abounds. It really does. Paul told Timothy in Second uh, Timothy 3, 1 through 3, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, and not loving good. You know, it breaks my heart, and it should make you very angry as well, to what has happened even over in Ohio with with that law that they put into practice now, that they can murder and butcher children Babies, even up to the time before they're born? That's horrible. That's wicked. That's evil. But can I tell you something? Even though it may seem like they are flourishing just for a little while, they will be destroyed. God's going to take care of it. And I think that's why verse 8 is so important. It's so encouraging because it seems as if the wicked are getting away with things like this. Look at verse 8. Don't miss this because I think this is, this is powerful. But you, O oh Lord, are on high forever. Even though the wickedness abounds, even though wicked men are doing evil things... The psalmist turns his eyes to the Lord and he says, But you, O Lord, are on high forever. I believe verse 8 is a single line that serves as the hinge verse of the psalm and the central fact on which the entire psalm rests. As one Bible commentator says, he says, This statement alone is the great pillar of the universe and of our faith. We must remember that God is the most high God. God is on high, and he is not worried about the schemes of the wicked. God humbled King Nebuchadnezzar when he was so proud in his heart. Look at my kingdoms. Look what I've done. All this, I've done this, I've done that. And God humbled him. He caused him to crawl around on all fours. Hair grew on his back. His fingernails grew really long. And he ate grass like a a wild animal. God humbled him. Listen to what King Nebuchadnezzar said after all of that. In Daniel 4.35, Nebuchadnezzar said regarding his experience, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he, God, does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done? So we should give thanks to the Lord because he is worthy of worship. Give thanks to the Lord because he will triumph over the wicked. Here's the last one. Give thanks to the Lord for he will flourish the righteous. You can see here the contrast here from the perishing of the wicked to the flourishing of the righteous. God causes the wicked to perish and he also causes the righteous to flourish. The wicked only flourish for a short time, but the righteous for many years. Note four ways that we can thank God for as he flourishes righteousness. Number one, God gives strength and refreshment to the righteous. Look at verse 10. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. The horn was a symbol of strength. It was also used as a container to pour anointing oil. And that anointing oil was sometimes used to consecrate the priests for service and to anoint the king to office. It was also a picture of soothing refreshment and joy. I think all of us in here are pretty familiar with Psalm 23. Thou anointest my head with what? Oil. We also see it in Psalm 45, 7 and also Psalm 133, 2. And so if you know the Lord is your shepherd, then you have experienced his strength. You've experienced his refreshing, this anointing that he's brought upon us. Secondly, God gives victory to the righteous over their enemies. Look at verse number 11. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The psalmist here is rejoicing. God did not protect the psalmist from having any enemies. No. The psalmist had to endure the trials and the hardships and the difficulties. But God, sure enough, did bring victory, finally, in all of that. And so he didn't protect him uh, in that. As believers in Christ, we are not guaranteed a peaceful existence in the sense of not having to fight against the evil forces of darkness. Rather, we are promised victory in the battle as we put on God's armor and we stand firm in the truth. Here's the third thing. God causes the righteous to flourish, grow, and bear fruit. Look at verses 12 and 13. He says, "...the righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon." They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. Now notice how the psalmist paints this vivid picture for here. He describes the righteous as what? A palm tree and a cedar. Both of these trees are evergreens. Their leaves are always green. The palm tree is very graceful in how it shoots up. If you've ever been out west, you see those palm trees there in Arizona and California and Nevada, all those areas over there. You see those palm trees, they kind of come up and they're kind of dangling, you know, like this. They got those palm branches coming out, right? It's a really neat picture. By the way, it's buried under the giant W. Remember giant W? Remember that one? Okay. <laughs> but anyways... Uh, So you have these giant palm trees, right? And they're out there. And then he talks about the cedar trees, right? These giant trees, the, the cedars of Lebanon. They're strong, they're firm, they're rigid. And he's painting the believers as a picture there, right? Like the palm trees and the cedars. Now notice where both of these trees are planted. In the house or the courts of the Lord. The way that they built houses back then, they would build them in a square. And they'd have the house, but then in the middle of the house, you would have a courtyard. And in that courtyard, that's where they would plant things. And the house protected the trees from all the wind. It kept it warm. Think about it. Make the connection here. Where does God plant us? In his house, we are protected by the Lord. I believe Romans 8 really fits in here, right? (laughs) Really good. That neither death, right? All those things, they cannot harm us. Why? Because we are more than conquerors with the Lord. And so the trees were planted and they were protected protected the psalmist adds this in verse 14 look what he says here they still bear fruit in their old age they are ever full of sap and green and so he says that's what of these trees the overall picture is that God causes the righteous to flourish even into old age and we got quite a mix in here now you know we got uh, young children and we got some graceful senior saints right Uh, We got this quite nice mix. But I don't believe the psalmist is necessarily talking about age here. Physical age. I believe in our spiritual age. You know, we also have in here believers that have only known Christ for not very long. And we also have believers in here that have known Christ for quite some time. And it is good for us to sit under and learn from older believers. Wait a minute, isn't there a New Testament text about that? The aged women teaching who? The younger women. Older men teaching the younger men. I think it's very important that we learn from each other. Learn each other's stories. Learn what what Christ has done in their life. Learn how God has worked in their life. And we can learn from all of that. Here's the fourth thing. God gives the righteous to praise him. Check out verse 15. To declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. Notice what these old flourishing trees in God's house declare. That the Lord is upright. He is my rock. There is no unrighteousness in him. Now it's interesting. You see that word declare there? Same word that he began this psalm with in in verse number 2. It's bringing this psalm full circle, coming back around. He's saying, we are declaring God, what he has done. We're giving thanks to him. and We are declaring who God is. Listen to the testimony of the righteous. This is what they thank God for, what they praise God for in worship. Here it is. God is upright. He is their rock with no unrighteousness in him. That this testimony is put up against the momentary flourishing of the wicked that God's going to destroy. They're all going to perish. But he says, God is our rock. Right? There is no unrighteousness in him. Those who have walked with God for years will declare that he is their rock, the firm foundation that he has enabled them to stand through the many trials in life. And even when they come to the very last part of their life and their eyes will close in death and they will cross over the waters into the celestial city just like how John Bunyan writes over there in the Pilgrim's Progress where there's Christian and hopeful and they're crossing over the rivers into the celestial city and they're going through there and Christian declares, he says, hey, hey, I know, I know this looks a little, little shaky here but there's a rock here. We can go right in, and God will be faithful and firm even until the end, always. And the psalmist says, let's declare it. God is faithful. Let's give thanks to him for what he has done. We have a lot to praise and thank God for. We just need to take our eyes off of self and put our eyes on the Lord for what he has done. Because He is the Most High, who is upright. He is our rock, and there is no unrighteousness in Him. Let's pray together. If you're interested in more information about our church, or knowing the peace that Jesus gives, visit our website at lifeattheridge.church.